I'm in Luke chapter 2. No, I'm not. I'm in Luke 22. Just checking to see if you're paying attention. No, I wasn't. I just misspoke. Luke chapter 22. We're going to begin reading in verse 24 and read through verse 34. Luke 22, 24 through 34. These 11 verses. I'll bring out the New King James Version as is our custom. God's Word says, Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he who governs as he who serves. Who is greater? He who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brothers, your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you deny me three times, deny three times that you know me. We are in Luke chapter 22 and we are in a very powerful period of time. A brief time, really, only a few hours. But uh, its influence is very far-reaching. We saw a little bit of it last week as we see this transition uh, from really a Hebraic kind of worship into uh, a Christ-centered, and not that Hebraic worship wasn't Christ-centered. If it was done properly, it really was. But now we're moving into a period of time when it's after the sacrifice. What is our worship going to look like? And how is it going to uh, be portrayed? Christ, of course, completes or fulfills the Passover. He then initiates what we have described as the Lord's Supper. And that transition is, a, is perhaps no more powerfully presented than the Gospel of Luke. We find Christ uh, giving us something uh, of equal quality in terms of what we are participating in, and yet of much more significance. Equal in quality in that if we really engaged ourselves fully in the act of the Lord's table, we would see that the significance there, we might say, well, there's only two elements, and, and in the Passover meal we have all these other aspects involved. But if we really consider all that is wrapped up in these elements, uh, they are far-reaching. The whole idea that God became flesh is of much more significance than unleavened bread. The whole idea of the sacrifice of Christ's shed blood is of much more significance than of lambs on the lintel and doorposts, which was the original Passover. But remember, all Passover since were very different than the original. The original one was of its own nature. And so all the Passover since, they did not put blood on the doorposts and lintels again, did they? Because that was a single event. And Christ's sacrifice was a single event. And we're not trying to reconstruct it. We are simply remembering it. Just as Passover was not trying to reconstruct that night, but rather it was remembering that night. And so Christ implements this, and we talked extensively about that, of the, of the 
huge shift that occurs here uh, for the church. Looking into the Gospels, we have this great shift. And if you if you underestimate that, uh, you're doing an injury, I think, to what is being uh, proposed here. Uh, remember that for Luke, this is very important. Uh, his ministry wrapped up into that of Paul's uh, and Silas and, and uh, the ministry largely to the Gentiles, not exclusively. Okay? Paul always went to the synagogues first, or he went and met with the Jews if there was no synagogue, as in Philippi. And so we um, find him certainly engaging the Jewish community, but the focus of their ministry became more and more that of, of the Gentiles. And so for Luke, he's really uh, giving us some of the doctrinal and historical aspects of this uh, new culture. And it really was a church culture, which was radically different than the Hebrew worship. And so Hebrew worship that was set up around the synagogue is going to radically change now. It was based upon the Torah. It looked at the Hebraic events and their celebrations. And now... Um, for the church, we are now going to take on a different kind of worship, um, not because the other one was is bad, but because it's complete. It's full. Christ finished it. And now, what is replacing it isn't of lesser, but of greater significance. And it's a little, uh, and as I said last week, it, it is disappointing that we find more interest even in Christian communities, even in churches today, I find a greater interest or curiosity in the uh, activity of, of uh, Hebraic celebrations, particularly that of Passover, than they have in their own celebrations. Perhaps familiarity has in fact bred a little contempt towards it. And yet, we want to fill this time up. Well, Christ has just completed that. And now, having had communion with his uh, disciples and instructing them in it, uh, we move into some of their conversation. Now, again, as I said last week, the fullest part of their conversation is the Gospel of John, where Christ gives extensive teaching, uh, and John gives us the fullest version of that. Each of the Gospel writers uh, gives us some uh, input and some addition, and uh, certainly Luke is no exception here. What Luke seems to do is take uh, what we find in John and really just encapsulating it. We can kind of read between the lines, or because we have the Gospel of John, we can kind of see what generated some of the conversation. We also have Matthew Mark, which helps as well. And so we come to Luke 22, verse 24, and we find that the uh, betrayer has been identified. We saw that several weeks ago. We have um, now some uh, interaction. Christ has taught them this new celebration. And now the disciples are going to respond. And I don't know what your vision of the first Lord's table is like. You probably have a famous painting in your mind already. Right? Okay? We have this idea of what it was like, which, by the way, is totally outlandish because you're not allowed to sit in chairs. In that time period for the Passover, you were not permitted to sit in chairs. You sat on the floor, lounged. Um, and so when you see them seated at a table on chairs, you know it's inaccurate right off. But we have a picture of this Lord's night, of this table, of the, of the night of the Lord's table as being a very serene, very quiet and very subdued setting. But that is very different than how the Bible describes it. And, uh, and we're going to throw serene right out the window when we get right to verse 24. Because we find that one of the things that's going on that night is there's an argument. And this argument hasn't been going on for just a few minutes, not even for a few hours. This argument has been going on for weeks. And we're going to look at it and look at what underlies it and how to avoid it and what it instructs us by Christ's correction of it here again. This isn't the first time he's addressed it, but at least the third. So let's go, Lord, in prayer, though, before we get into it. Lord God, we do thank you for your word before us, and we recognize that, again, we have work to do as we come to your word to conform ourselves to your truth. And we see 
much of uh, what you were dealing with among your disciples uh, present in our own lives, in our own congregation. And we pray that we might uh, not be so dull spiritually to its truth, but that we might again humble ourselves to consider it, bring it into our very lives and apply it not only individually, but corporately as a church, that we might seek to worship you as you would have us. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Now, let's read a little bit of our text here. It says, Now there was also a dispute among them. And we immediately think, here is this wonderful Lord's table that we just got done celebrating. Everyone is feeling good. Judas has gotten up and left and done his thing because God, Jesus has kind of dismissed him to do what he's got to do. Um, and we're like, okay, now the betrayer's gone. We've had this intimate uh, meal together. We've had the institution of this very significant uh, cel- uh, uh, bread and, and cup. And we're just imagining that they're just in this glow of spiritual oneness. But in fact, they're more Baptist than we thought. They're fighting. I mean, they just took the sip out of the cup and sat it down, and it can't be much longer, and they're fighting at the table. What are they disputing over? They're disputing, it says, over who would be greatest in the kingdom of God. Which of them is greatest? Which one of us? is going to be the chief rulers of this new kingdom that we're implementing. Now, how do we know this argument's been going on? Well, Matthew and Mark tell us that this was already happening in Bethany before the triumphal entry. That was a few days ago, a couple, three days ago. We have the triumphal entry. Before that, they were arguing about who would be the greatest. And that was implemented by uh, the mommy of James and John, we are told the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. Those two guys' mom says, I want my sons to be right and left in your kingdom. I wonder which one she wanted the right and which one she wanted the left. Do you ever wonder? But she was going to promote her kid, her kids, her two sons. And she was going to do that, and, and Jesus had to deal with that. But that wasn't the first time. We had already had to deal with this very same argument we learned earlier in Capernaum which is before the trip to Jerusalem. They had the same argument. Who's going to be greatest in this kingdom of heaven that's coming? And I want to understand the attitude and heart of the disciples. We've said it and we've intimated it with Judas as well a few weeks ago, but we need to understand they thought this was the earthly reign of Christ on earth where they would subdue the Romans and they would set up a global kingdom where they would rule Jesus. They saw it coming and the triumphal entry only affirmed it in their mind and jesus cleansing the temple just made them more sure of it and we come here and they've just totally blown off jesus direct statements of his death burial and resurrection just blown them off they are so focused on this and so they've been arguing this uh certainly for days i would contend for weeks they've been arguing these points. Who is going to have the preeminence in the kingdom of God? Who's going to have the, the right hand of the throne? And it's interesting that Jesus Christ deals with three individuals that we call the inner circle. Peter, James, and John. They were the inner circle. Now, Why do we call them the inner circle? Because on several occasions, Jesus has taken them out of the twelve for a particular time. Uh, Of most noteworthy is probably the Mount of Transfiguration is where he pulls them aside. He pulls them aside for some ministry and for some prayer and things like that. And so of the three, you would think, who have the inside track on the greatest places in the kingdom of heaven, it would be Peter, James, and John, and it is those three that Jesus Christ has to deal with directly and essentially has to humble them. James and John we find recorded for us in uh, uh, more extensively in, in Mark, um, but we find it here described uh, in very 
general terms because they weren't the only ones involved. Because in that text we find that once Jesus Christ had put James and John and their mommy in place, the others got angry that they asked. It's not that they didn't want it too. They were just angry that those two had the gall to ask. Well, they had their mom helping them. And so they, they, they're, they're, there's, there's anger among all of them. And Luke, rather than isolating them, he really draws this out and just says, you know, they're a dispute among all of them. Who should be considered the greatest? And Jesus Christ has to intervene because he's introducing an entirely new corporate culture. And we think of corporations as businesses. All corporate means is a body, a group. So you are, we, we are corporately worshiping right now. We are worshiping as a group. Um, hopefully, you're worshiping individually um, whenever you're alone. Not just once or twice, not just five minutes when you read a little bit of Bible verses in the morning, but your entire, worship, your entire life should be worship. Okay? And so... If we start thinking those kinds of terms, that's individual worship. You have family worship. This is corporate worship. We gather as a body and we worship. Um, And so Christ here is redefining that. And so he takes the disciples to task here and says, listen, this is how the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. And so we have, you're trying to set up a, a, a... structure of government that has uh, lords and you have authorities and you have uh, benefactors who are supplying that. And and, and we're not interested in setting that up. We're not interested in replicating what they're doing in our kingdom. In the kingdom of God, we're not interested in replicating the world's style of either in government or in any other way, here. And as I took us to task on very practical issues last week, got you guys upset, I'm going to get you upset again this morning. Okay, We we often wonder where our concepts of congregational government come from, and they're pretty American, to tell you the truth. If you go to a lot of countries, it's just not there in the church, uh, where you, and and we we function a little differently probably than a lot of our GRBC churches who really 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 focus on congregational government. It does have a theological foundation, which is why we still use it here. Um, but it does not negate uh, other issues. What is the theological foundation of our government style, where we have a vote, um, is based upon uh, the fact that you're all priests. That's the theological foundation of church government where we take a vote. And that is that you are all priests. You are all filled with the Holy Spirit if you're a believer. And we have all equal standing, equal access to God. There is not someone here that is necessarily by office superior in his walk with God than another. So what is the issue? The issue is, is that we still believe the majority rules, which is not in the Bible. Why? Because if you look to the Scriptures, even though all are filled with the Holy Spirit, we find that generally as a rule, God works in the minority. As a rule, God works through the minority. Sometimes that minority was down to just handfuls out of millions. But we have an American mentality that, well, we have 51%, therefore we must be right. And the fact is, is that 51% and even 89%, even 99.5% could be wrong in the kingdom of heaven. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily that if you're in the minority that you have a special place because some of you just, sometimes we're just contentious and ornery and that's not godly. But the fact is, is that in Scripture we find the minority often uh, represent the interests of God. And uh, while it's not constitutional in our church, it is something I have implemented as your pastor, and some of you have noticed that. 
Um, it's come out a few times. We require, not constitutionally, not by our documents, we require consensus. I require consensus. As a pastor at our business meeting, I require it. And if we don't have consensus, then we stop. And we back up and we say, well, let's restudy this. Why? Why do we do that? Why do, I mean, I mean, our document says that we only need this many for, for a quorum and that we only need this much for this vote, and we all, but we need this much to do this. And, and it's very American, but it's not very biblical. If you go through the book of Acts, what you will find is consensus when they're following the will of God. You don't find anyone really going against the Jerusalem Council. They were all fine with it. You don't find them going against the selection of those seven men to care for the widows. They were all great with it. That sounds like a great idea. Consensus. And so we find uh, here again Christ calling us to a, a new culture. And I've been taken to task by many people First of all, because it requires so many to have a quorum in our Constitution. You can't believe how many people say that you'll never get that. We've, I think we've only missed it once in, what, 14 years? I think we've only missed the quorum once and we got on the phone and got it. You can't believe how many pastors told me you'll not be able to achieve that. And then the idea of consensus... Here's what they have been told. Here's what I've been told. That gives the rule to one. One person can ruin things. I said, yeah. Or they can save things. See, if our perspective is always negative, we're assuming man's in control instead of God. Jesus Christ has just transformed the way we think of the body of the kingdom. And it's not about who has authority over who. In fact, it's very different. It's about who's serving who. Verse 26. Very flabbergasting statement. But not so among you. I'm pretty sure most of us are convinced that the American system of government is the best on earth. And the forefathers didn't believe that, by the way. Um, they, in fact, their statement was, if we ever stop being a Christian country, this is going to be a horrible form of government. Which it is, because we have. It is not the form of government God set up. But we're sure that it's going to work in the church. God says, but let it not be so among you. We don't go to the world to try to determine how we are going to do church. We just don't do it. In fact, if we want to do anything, we go to the world and we say, but let it not be so among you. I don't care if the world says this is the way to do it and this is the way. The world says that there's a way to handle your finances and God has a very different view and I prefer God's. It seems to please Him. To bless when we handle it that way. But not so among you. On the contrary. So, and we learned this at the GRBC conference about what GARBC really means. Anybody want to rehearse that that went? Grand Army of Rebellious Baptist Churches. We're contrarians. We are contrarians. What does that mean? It means that, that we are at war. That we look at the world and we recognize, I don't want to be like that. Anything that's appealing there, I look at it and say, why is it appealing? Why is it appealing? The world hates 
God. It hates all that God stands for. Therefore, the movement that they are going to make in every aspect of culture is going to be away from God. And therefore, I am going to be a contrarian. On the contrary. I'm going to move away from where they're moving because they're moving away from God. You want to be great? You want to be great? You guys are all worried about being great, about who's going to be the highest position, who's going to have the preeminence. You're going to have to humble yourself. You're going to have to be like you're the baby. You're the youngest. Like you're going to give preference to everyone above you because they're your elder. You're going to have to start acting like that and start exalt, stop exalting yourself because in the kingdom of God, if you want a governing role, you're going to serve. Let me say that again. In the kingdom of God, if you want a governing role, you're going to have to serve. Now, the word politician actually means servant of the people. Um, the politicians don't know that, but um, that's what it actually means. And so we are called, though, to serve. And that term is actually drawn out of that biblical principle. That to govern, you need to, under, you need to view yourself as a servant. And we have entirely lost that because we've entirely lost its connection to God's word in our culture, in our society, in our nation. But we are essentially, what Christ calls us to is an understanding that when we humble ourselves in absolute service, we begin to uh, have placed upon us those governing responsibilities or privileges that only God distributes. Let's look at it a little bit further. Let's read it through. It says, who is greater? He who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Certainly. Obviously, the, the guy serving the food and the person sitting there, we know the authority structure there. And Christ says, listen, you understand that. Now, get it, wrap your mind around this. I'm here serving you. John explains to us how Christ showed that. He got up and washed everyone's feet. Again, Luke doesn't give us a lot of the details in the fullest. He's hitting the highlights of the things that we can fill in those blanks with the other gospel writers. But we find out that he goes around and washes all their feet because none of them did it. None of them were willing to fulfill that role. That's a servant's role. It's one of the lowest servant's job. And when they entered this house, there were no servants. It was prepared for them, and there was no servant there to do that. So they were all sitting at the table without their feet washed. None of them were willing. And Jesus Christ takes it upon himself to do that. And his statement here is, you know what? We're all sitting here at the table, and you're all fighting over who's the greatest And I've already shown you who the greatest person is. It's the one who's willing to do the lowest job. Without complaint, without reward, without thanks, without remuneration, (laughs) we do it. And therein, God says, you are someone I can trust with further ministry. Christ becomes the example. The inner circle, Peter, James, and John, had the inside track on on the elevated places in the kingdom, but Christ says, listen, until you follow my example, you'll have none of it. Until you're willing to take and serve on the lowest of levels, until you're willing to, to get down and dirty if necessary, until you're willing to take people's feet that they've walked in their sandals across the the sandy desert of down the hill and up the hill and across and the brook and here they are. And Christ says, I'm doing that. Do you think I'm the lowest person here? 
You know I'm not. Because you see, I stepped down from a different table, a heavenly one, to come here and serve you. And Christ becomes our example of service. And he corrects these guys and basically just, he's frustrated, a little angry with them, rightly so. And he says, listen, you got the wrong end of the stick entirely. You're totally reversed. You're here fighting over who's the grace. You're so worried about yourself and self-importance that you're missing that the greatness in the kingdom of God is measured by the value you place on others. Just as God in love valued us who were completely unvaluable, without value. The only value we have is the counted worth of Christ. When we are willing to subjugate ourselves, to take on the role as the younger, to allow any kind of disregard or, or any kind of uh, put-down, to just be placed on our shoulders and accept it freely and faithfully serve on, God says, in you I'll be pleased, just as in my Son I am well pleased. You want to be in that capacity? It is not about taking on roles taking on titles, but of service. And Jesus Christ comes as our greatest examples, His greatest example of service. For He left heaven's glory to serve us. And we're the lowest of the low. And so it is in our corporateness as a church body, um, what is honored, what is glorified, what is what is pleasing, we know to God, is self-sacrificing service. A service that says, I'm going to care for others. It's going to be expensive to me. I'm expecting nothing in return. In fact, I prefer to serve those who can't return it to me. And when you have those kinds of opportunities, I pray you lay hold on them because there is godly service. Someone who can't thank you, won't thank you, can't reciprocate, can't remunerate, can't even... Smile over it. Because maybe they don't even know you're doing it. That's the kind of service that God says, you're a man I can use. You're a woman I can use. And I'll exalt you in my kingdom. In a circle, two of the three have been put in their place by Christ. We find and Mark, and Matthew. The third one, and of all, this is one instance that is recorded in all of them, is Simon. Having put James and John in their place and dealing with that, and certainly there was some animosity towards James and John, Christ quickly just turns to Simon. And out of the blue, seemingly, Says Simon, Satan wants you. Satan is asking for you. He wants to sift you as wheat. He wants you to put you through difficult times. And in fact, that's really what's going to kind of happen here within a few hours. So Satan's asked for you, and I'm going to tell you why Satan could still do that, and that's because Christ hadn't completed his work yet. Satan isn't asking for any of you. I want you to understand that. Satan no longer has this kind of access to God. Because of the completed work of Christ, Satan was cast out of permanently, forever, heaven. And if that makes you thought, well, that happened when he sinned, now, there was some kind of access that Satan could go and accuse the brethren as he did in the book of Job. And as he does here, Satan had that access to say, I'm going to make an accusation against this person that you call your follower. I say he's only doing it for this and this and this reason. 
Satan's not doing that today. He cannot do that today because of the completed work of Jesus Christ. So Satan is not asking for any of your souls. He is trapped here on earth. He's an angry, roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, um, but he is not engaged in this activity any longer. Praise the Lord. You glad? That's the wonder of being on this side of the resurrection. But at this point, Satan still had that access. And one of the things he was specifically asking for is that Simon character. Now, he'd already filled Judas. He'd already knocked off one. Now he's asking for number two. And he's taking what would have been considered now with James and John uh, humiliated a little bit by Christ's uh, statement and uh, be the, the main guy now is Peter. Simon. Simon Peter. Satan says, I, want, I don't think he's got it. Let me put him through the ringer. He'll deny you. And so Jesus Christ selects him and says, listen, if you think I'm talking to them and not talking to you, you're wrong. And I'm going to point the finger right at you and say, you're next. You're next. Judas has betrayed me. James and John, I've just had to publicly put in their place. But you're next. Simon, you're going to reject me. But even in the midst of this powerful confrontation, we have verse 32, which is just extraordinary. Jesus Christ gives us um, three statements, three clauses here, statements here that are just uh, amazing. John explodes these for us. I mean, just expands them uh, into three chapters. He looks at Peter and says, I'm praying for you. You want to read how Jesus prays? Read John 16. Jesus prays for his disciples in their presence. This is not the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the prayer here. And Jesus says, I'm praying for you. It's not, I'm not praying for the other guys. That, that you might think I'm praying for them, but I prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Because that's really what Satan wants, is for your faith and my faith to fail. And let me share with you, the greatest, one of the greater dangers to your faith failing is your own, get this, your own pride. Our lack of humility sets us up for great danger. If you want to summarize what I've just said, you know the saying, pride cometh before fall. The greatest danger to your faith failing is your own self-importance. And when we only think of ourselves, guess what? You're in trouble. You're, you're Satan's cannon fodder. And yet when we look at the world, what does the world tell us to think about? What does the world focus on? you got to think about yourself. you got to watch out for yourself. you got to care for yourself. you got to deal with number one. you got to take care. you got to have... Self-esteem. Got to have self-love. And it's crept into the church. It doesn't crept into the church. It's flooded into the church. And Christ here says, listen, I'm praying that your faith not fail. And Peter's response to that is an indication of what the problem is, isn't it? I'll never fail. I'll go to prison. I'll even die. I'm ready. Do you see the problem? He had set himself up with his own self-aggrandizement. And it is one of the most dangerous, most destructive aspects of humanity is our pride. I've been fighting it all week over here. Someone should be here holding this other end with me. Boo-hoo. As if you guys don't have a life. 
By the way, on the website of the little machine, the little lift I bought, it says, let your friends have their Saturdays off. You can do this by yourself now with this machine. And I have been. It's kind of fun. Crank it up to the ceiling. The ceiling pieces are actually the easiest now. I don't need any help for them. I figured it all out. Oh, how easy it is to start pouting. Poor me. Poor me. Shame on us. And with this message ringing in my head, going back and forth, I kept catching myself and saying, lucky me. Lucky me. It's a whole paradigm shift from thinking about ourselves to saying, if I can pour myself out, I am in the blessed position. When I empty myself, that is when I'm fullest in the kingdom of heaven. How blessed it is when I have that opportunity. But you see, Peter's too self-oriented to think he's capable of falling. And that makes him in the most dangerous of positions. And Jesus identifies it. Yes, you've seen me put James and John in their place. Uh, Judas has just walked out and I just identified him as the betrayer. But listen, Peter, you're in the greatest trouble of them all. And I'm going to have to pray for you specifically. Because you think too much of yourself. And Peter's response is, I ain't never going to deny you. I'm ready to die. We sang a chorus this morning, and uh, we have to correct it because it's wrong. It says, um, somewhere in the chorus, I can't remember what the name now. I I meant to remember, I meant to mark it. It says, and say that I love you. We need to change that word say to show. Open my eyes. That's the one it is. Open my eyes, Lord. In that chorus it says, and say that I love you. That's not enough. Peter said a lot of things. Didn't back it up. And I got to tell you something. In our culture, we say a lot of things. You hear it, don't you? In fact, we glorify it. We glorify trash talking on the ball game field, don't we? On the basketball courts, on the football fields, um, even in track. It's not so much in track, cross country, but but you hear it. I'm going to whoop you. I'm taking you down. I'm going to school you. All that trash talking. And we glorify it in our culture. Um, We can talk this big talk. And Christ says, you know what? That kind of talk tells me you're in trouble. Because you're not facing the potential devastation that's coming. So I'm praying for you. Your face will not fail. And then the, the second phrase in verse 32 that's just wonderful is, when you have returned to me. Isn't that great? You are going to fail. Kind of. Temporarily. You are going to fall. You are going to deny me. He's going to finish this up um, in verse 34. By the time cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And um, he says, you are going to deny me, uh, but when you return to me. Not if, but when. You know what? I've prayed for you, and you're going to have a hard fall, Peter. You're going to be humbled. You're going to be humiliated. In fact, you're going to be so humiliated, you're going to think that you're unusable to God. But I'm going to tell you, you're going to come back. And when we look at Haggai in our Sunday night study that started last week, um, that's the whole message is coming back. How do you come back? How do you get back in? Um, And if anyone was humiliated, Israel and Judah were humiliated. And for 70 years, we're in exile. And now here's the path back to God. Here's the path back out of that. And Jesus Christ has a, has a prophetic statement here. When you have returned to me. And then we have this great next statement. Strengthen your brethren. You're going to have a job to do. You're going to have work that needs to be accomplished. You're going to have to, first of all, be humbled because you haven't humbled yourself. 
And I've long said that here. You've heard it many times out of my mouth. If you do not humble yourself, God's act of humbling you is intense. It is always preferred that we humble ourselves. And so, because Peter wasn't willing to do that, even having this engagement with Jesus washing his feet and making the statement, oh, wash all of me, and, and having all, and this kind of a statement, I'm going to die for you, I'm the guy, um, being the inner circle, he's at the Tran- Mount of Transfiguration, we're going to set up some tabernacles here, and, and uh, just saying inappropriate things, and, and we just have that, it's not that he's totally unusable, it's that once you've been humiliated, and you come back. I have a job for you. And I want to share that this is very counter to our culture. Our culture wants to elevate those who will self-promote. Doesn't it? Self-promote, that's the way up. you got to self-promote. Because no one else is watching out for you. No one else is trying to get you your promotion at work. You've got to promote yourself. You've got to put yourself out there and push yourself out there. And God says, promote others. God says, lift up others. Esteem others better than yourself. And it comes and returns to you. And then it says, you're going to be that one that is going to have to strengthen your brethren. You're the one that's going to have to care for these. I have a job for you still. We have this wonderful prophetic statement of what happens when we are either humbled by God or we choose to humble ourselves. We are guarding our faith. We are coming nearer to God. And now we can be used of God among the brethren. And this is the culture of our church, or at least ought to be. But this is what it is about. It's not me caring for my interests and the interests of mine, of my family, of my kids, of, of my stuff, or of, but rather caring for the interests of others to the point of it costing me and mine. It is a culture of humility. It is a culture that is contrary to what is all around us in this world. It is a culture contrary to what your children are learning at school. It's a culture contrary to every movie that you're watching. It's a culture that is contrary to all the media you're exposed to. And yet that's the culture we are called to here. It is a culture that enables us to make mistakes and be human and rub people the wrong way, but because of loving humility, it is the oil that just makes it all smooth. It heals it all. Without contention, without bitterness, without strife, without envy, without uh, division, How can a church function that way? Only if we function according to this principle. If we are each seeking our own, guess what? Tomorrow, there's going to be about 40 churches. Each one of you might as well go out and start your own. Don't let anyone else join it because they'll ruin it for you. This is a cultural shift that is of huge proportions. We don't go out and look at the world and say, we need to bring their philosophies in here. We need to bring their structure in here. We need to bring their attitudes in here. And that is what is poisoning church after church after church today. Our challenge is to come in here and be different. To be godly, knowing that the world is godless. 
and that we want to be contrary to the world. Occasionally, young people ask me, good rule of thumb <laughs> to live a godly life or to know that you're living God's will. And I say, well, when you're different. When you're different. What's the difference? And if there's no difference, then don't claim a high state of spirituality because you're just setting yourself up for a great fall. The inner three. We're causing dispute. Christ tells them, you have continued with me in my trials. I will bestow upon you a kingdom. You will eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He tells us we skip that for a reason. There is a reward. But notice how often he keeps coming back to the idea of the kingdom. The kingdom. The kingdom. The kingdom. The kingdom. And the kingdom he's talking about is not of this world. They haven't figured that out yet. They will. The sad thing is when we haven't figured it out yet. But this is not the place of our exaltation. This is the place where we stay humble, waiting for that day of the kingdom. Until that day, the kingdom of God lies within us. And so we are called to this kind of living as a body and as individuals. Radically different. And I would contend only when we live this kind of way is our faith guarded from failure. Let's pray.